Welcome to NCFM Today, a podcast about family medicine in the Old North State. I'm your host, Greg Griggs. This month, we are talking with our new NCFP General Counsel and Chief of Staff, Sean Parker. He'll discuss employment agreements with us. Sean has a tremendous amount of experience in this area, having made numerous presentations about employment agreements and in the past helped negotiate employment agreements. Uh, Sean, welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm real, real glad to be here. So, Sean, earlier this month, uh, the American Academy of Family Physicians updated their website with a lot of tips for navigating uh, physician employment agreements. Uh, why do you think there's such a renewed interest in this subject matter? Well, uh, you know, healthcare law and, and employment law are heavily regulated, so it's very common that there are uh, legal agreements uh, to to bind those relationships. But but I think um, recently, you know, with COVID going on, there's been a new uptick in interest in what what uh, your employment agreement says. So, how so? What about the pandemic caused this renewed interest? Well, early on, like initially, I was actually getting quite a few calls from practices as, as well as uh, physicians uh, where they were in like a guaranteed payment. And then clearly during the early stages of pandemic, the practice revenues were very low. So it was a case where what can I do to modify this uh, or what are my obligations to the physician and, and vice versa? Uh, and Later in, in, in the pandemic, I think what you see is people were really starting to, like in many professions, just kind of evaluate the relationship they have with their employer and kind of deciding whether it's aligned with their personal and professional priorities. So that self-reflection is really kind of emphasized where a physician may find themselves in their employment life cycle. Uh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, it's really interesting to think about employment agreements in, in terms of a life cycle. And, you know, uh, certainly many physicians uh, change jobs in their career. We actually talked about in our podcast in September. Uh, so starting as if you're at the beginning of that life cycle pre-employment, what's the first thing a physician should do? That's a great place to start. So first, I guess, if you're currently employed, right, if you're currently in working, what I would do is look to the employment agreement that you're under. Or if you had any other things, and perhaps you had a letter of interest when you were a resident and you've signed that already, I would look to those uh, documents first. Uh, but then, then really... Prior to getting the contract in hand is really where I would use, uh, you know, this is your best opportunity uh, during that recruitment process to kind of informally, you know, vet the employer. You know, this is where you can kind of discuss concerns or issues you'd like to see in the agreement. And, and here in a non-binding fashion, you know, how do they function as a practice? That makes a great sense. Uh you really are not just interviewing the physician, but you're interviewing the employer at the same time. So, so, you, so you have an offer and you know maybe they've sent you their standard agreement. Is there really anything that's actually standard in these agreements? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, so, Typically correct, you know, all, all contracts are going to carry similar provisions, right? They, they're going to tell you who the parties are. They're going to cover the term. Um, what, what you'll find in, in physician employment agreements that while there is a lot of standard uh, provisions, a lot, lot of them that are comparable, you know, they're really the, the devil is going to be in the detail and, you know, in some circumstance, a, a lack of detail. Uh, and those the, it's the latter that causes me more concern than, than the former. 
So, so if something's not in the contract, you know, it's really up to interpretation then. That's right. That's right. And so the ones that are a little more detailed might be a little less balanced, but it's very clear what your responsibilities are. And I think that's the most important thing in a contract is to know what your obligations are and to know what your rights are. And and the more of the details, the better that's generally spelled out. So you've got that contract in hand. What should a family doctor look for? You know, we have both residents who may be taking their first job or we have real seasoned physicians uh, who are changing careers. So what's that? What do they look for in that contract? Well, that, that's that's great because again, when we go back to the uh, really detailed one versus the other, so you could have a eight page agreement or you could have a thirty eight page agreement. Um, and what what I'd say the key in in both circumstances is you've got to review it. You've got to read the contract. Just whatever you may have discussed with the recruiter or the practice, uh, that that has to be memorialized in writing. You need to make sure it's there. Um, what particular parts of the contract do I go to first? Well, I look at like basically certain dates and time frames. I think that's really the most important thing. So, you know, the effective date and your start date may be different. And so if the effective date means that you now have obligations that you are accruing because you've signed it, then you need to know the difference between that and the start date. Um, I also look at like duration. You know, that's a very common thing. How long, uh, whether it's an obligation before or after or during, um, when when it comes to something like the the ability to terminate the agreement, how long does it take for you to give notice? Um, how long is the agreement? Often someone will say, hey, I've got this great three-year agreement, the, the money's right, I don't mind moving. And then you'll look in and see that the practice may have a 30-day without cause termination provision. So in that circumstance, you really don't have a three-year agreement. You have a 30-day agreement. So before you pack up and move, you may want to keep that in mind on how long their obligations are for you. Um, per the COVID example, I'd look to see who can modify the agreement. How is it modified? What things are set to employment policy? What things are really spelled out in the contract? That's what I would look at first. Those, those are the keys for me. You've used the term with me in the past when we've discussed this, an evergreen contract. You know, what you know, what does that mean? And and usually that's probably more geared towards the employer than the employee. Yeah, so so an evergreen contract is one like like the evergreen tree that comes back each year. So very common in an employment agreement is it's a two-year term, and then you may have like a 90-day period, either party prior to that term expiring to give notice that you don't wish for it to continue. Failing to make that uh, a notice means that the agreement and all the terms and obligations that are in it will continue as is for that next length. So typically, again, you'll see like you have a 30, 90-day notice, and if you fail to give it, it'll renew it one year. Um, it's it's dual-edged, right? So there's a benefit to that if you're an employee because you keep your job unless something else according to the agreement happens and they do it. Um, but if you're in a spot where you might be up for a partnership uh, or, or some other reason you may want to materially change the contract, uh, an evergreen clause is not to your benefit because they don't really have to do anything, right? They, they, they would force your hand to say, terminate and let's discuss versus having a period of time that you guys need to go back and renegotiate, and make sure the arrangement is what everyone expected. 
And I've heard of instances where a physician maybe even changed locations within the same company and uh, the contract hadn't been looked at for quite some time, but they're still obligated if that's an evergreen contract. That's right. That is that is correct. If there is an evergreen in it, uh, you may not have seen that uh, contract in 15 years. It, it doesn't even apply. It doesn't even say the parties because of your, your practice may have been bought. But those conditions will still follow with you, uh, provided there's not an end date. And now, if there is a true end date and it expires... You can keep working under kind of the expectation because you don't need to be in a employment agreement to be employed as a physician. It just is the wise thing to do because then again, everyone knows their rights and obligations and it's enforceable by the contract. And and you also have said in the past how important it is to know how the agreement can be terminated. That's, that's correct. And, and this is one of those cases where sometimes it's unbalanced. Very often the, the practice will have its list of reasons to terminate for cause. And, and this is a case where you could review to make sure it's not too overly broad, that you want to be sure the physician has some due process rights. So they can't just say, hey, you parked wrong in the parking lot. You're out of here. Um, but but you, you as a physician also would want to have a ability to terminate for convenience. It may be after a period of time or otherwise, but I've seen a few where, where it's unfortunate that the only way the physician can terminate is if there's a material breach that's not corrected or the window of time they have for non-renewal and, uh, you know, life changes. And, and while both parties can always mutually agree to end the relationship, it's a lot better if you have the right to do it. Yeah, you certainly don't want to be terminated for parking wrong or even maybe a minor traffic offense, you know, and if, if that for calls is very broad, then I say, oh, you got a, you were going 52 and a 45 and got a ticket. You, that's for calls. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So again, you you that there's the detail. You want you want a little clarity. Uh, often you can add words for reasonableness. I mean, reasonableness is the eye of the beholder. But if you get it into the contract, then then you at least can make that argument that they are being unreasonable. So you've also mentioned obligations. Uh, what uh, type of obligations does the physician have and what type of obligations does the employer have when you're looking at an employment contract? Right. So I'll, I'll start with the employer because they're generally less, right? They, they're, they're agreeing they will pay you a certain amount of salary and benefits and provided you perform your uh, services and tasks as you do. Um, often, often better agreements will say that they, they'll spell out the support they'll provide you as a physician if they're going to provide any APPs, uh, clerical work, things like that. Um, but, but it's pretty de minimis on what they have to do. You'll find the physician out obligations are much greater. Um, and, and so it, what, I, what I would argue less about trying to add more obligations to the practice as much as making sure you have some rights if they fail to. Uh, there, is a, there is a common fallacy that comes about is um, many people believe if the practice breaches and not a material breach or doesn't commit or doesn't meet their obligations, that you're relieved of your obligations. And, and that's just not correct, that there's contractual rights you have. And so if you want to be released of obligations for their breach, you want to spell that out in the agreement. It's not uncommon. It's not unreasonable, but it doesn't just start that way. If, if they fail to give you, you know, adequate space to your, that, that doesn't relieve you of a restrictive covenant for non-compete. 
That's interesting. And, and obviously in your uh, agreement, you want to understand uh, the payment model, whether uh, in some instances you might be salaried and some it might be based, based on RVUs. Some may have uh, shared savings or uh, quality metrics. You, you really need to understand how that compensation is made up. That, that's a great point because they do vary. And I, often, you know, people right out of school, there might be a, an amount the first and second year that can be reduced. Uh, often in an RVU circumstance, there's a formula. Uh, it, it, it would be a good idea to know the formula, but even better to know how much do you control that, right? How many, how many patients do you see and, and, and is it because of your actions that can uh, respond or is it someone else who has control over that? And that, that was kind of even the COVID uh, um, issue where uh, someone on RVU, but there were no patients coming in. And so is it fair that they don't earn any salary during this time or not? And that was things we, we brought to discussion and had to try to work through uh, after the agreement had already been signed. You mentioned a whole realm of obligations. Uh, what are some of the after obligations, you know, after a contract ends? Yeah, so so with, with like before obligations that were maybe you, you you signed it as a resident and it's a year later and you're, you're going to agree to, well, I'll be licensed by then and I will have, maybe I'll be board certified. The during is clearly you're going to work as a professional and provide skilled uh, services. The, the after one is really what's the most uh, nitpicky, right? Because it's, it's again, it's after the relationship ends. Um, what, what we see the most for an after is what we call a restrictive covenant. And it, it, the, the most common common uh, is non-solicitation and non-competition. And it's, to me, it's very unique in the physician world. Uh, In in my profession, my occupational board does not allow non-competes. They believe as a licensee that uh, people I provide counsel to, that relationship between the attorney and the client is so strong that a employer or a contract can't prohibit future relationships. Medicine is not taking that approach. Medicine has said, you know, it's a business arrangement. And if there is a legitimate business uh, uh, interest, then they can be bound by a non-compete. And, you know, we could have a whole podcast on non-competes alone. Not not every state honors them. That's a North Carolina thing. Um, uh, what, what I'd look at is the non-solicitation. And so uh, what what doesn't bother me at all is uh, representing a physician is telling them, yes, agree, you're not going to go take co-workers. You're not going to solicit other workers to go start your own business. Sometimes I'll see you can't solicit patients. And, and I'll push back on that a little bit because, again, I don't believe it's the practice's patient. I believe it's the physician's patient. And, and really, per the medical board or others' guidance, you'd say, Patients have choice and, and patients should be able to freely choose. So I, I push back on that. If you get that changed, it's good because it's better. If you don't, you could at least later rely on that you made the effort and uh, and they did not accept that change. Uh, the, the other part is, is the non-compete. And if we have just a minute or two to kind of go in, really the, the non-compete where it's it, – it, in our state, in North Carolina, the enforcement of a non-compete is – if there's a legitimate business interest, and you'll see it spelled out in the contract that says, hey, this is a legitimate business interest of ours, um, but it's a, it's a test of time and duration, often a year, maybe two years from post-employment that you'll agree you won't provide medical services or work for a competitor uh, for a 
period of space. So time, distance, and, and it can't violate public policy. So often, you know, you can make a public policy argument that says uh, you're, you're restricting access to care and therefore this is unenforceable. Um, North Carolina does a blue line rule. So don't be surprised if you see something where it says, hey, you will not, uh, uh, you will not practice medicine on planet Earth. And if planet Earth is unenforceable, not in the continental United States, and if that is not enforceable, North Carolina, and if that's not enforceable, Wake County, because because of our blue line rules, a judge can come in and strike down if he has an option to make it more reasonable. Um, but, but often you'll see, you know, 15 miles, 20 miles from the location you're working. Um, I, I'm generally comfortable letting the physician take a look and see, well, what other jobs might you have in that area? Uh, you do want to look at it as the crow flies. It's not the, the, the country road that's 15 miles away, it's really from a spot in time and, and a big circle. The other thing to look at on distance is from where. Uh, it, it's, it's appropriate to say, I won't compete with you from where I'm providing services for you. You'll see very often that'll be any location that the practice has a, a, a clinic or even administrative site. And, and when you have some of these joint venture managed practices, that can be really anywhere in the state or anywhere in the Southeast. And, and so you really want to dial that down. And I think it's reasonable to say, hey, what's appropriate is I, I won't set up shop right next to you and take patients that, that I've been seeing, that I learned and, and met from working from you with you. That makes sense. So we're talking to you as a lawyer. Do you recommend that a family physician use a lawyer? Well, I, I think that's a that, that is a good question because uh, you know it's not so much whether you should, but really what's the best way to use a lawyer? And, and I can think of uh, two or three circumstances. So, so the very first best way or best reason to use an attorney is so that you have a comprehensive understanding of of the deal terms, right? You 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 have a lawyer; he's read the boilerplate. He can tell you what the boilerplate means and, and good layperson understanding, so that you know what you're agreeing to. Also, an, an experienced counsel will let you know what are the good battles to pick. Uh, clearly, the practice has hired a an attorney to write the contract, and then that attorney wrote it to the benefit of the hiring of the employer. That, that's just what we do. So an experienced counsel will look at it and say, you know what, this would be more reasonable. Uh, and, and in that sense, another good use of an attorney is to be the buffer, right? You're talking to the recruiter, you're excited about going to work for them. You don't wanna come back and say, hey, your contract's terrible. I need this change and this change. It's, it's much better to be able to approach and allow the attorney to say, he had some concerns about this language or this seems a little unique and wants more clarity. And that way, whether you have your attorney talk directly, which, you know, I do that maybe 10 percent of the time. Most of the time I would advise the physician on here's some things to talk to. Here's some things to say. Let's see what they say when they come back. Um, and, and that that generally makes the relationship a little easier to go forward with. And, and you know, Using a lawyer up front can call, uh, uh, help avoid a lot of problems down the road. Like if you get the non-compete clause right, because you can fight a non-compete clause after the fact, 
but you might spend a lot of money doing it. And, and many times, particularly if you're battling a large health system, they're going to have a lot more resources than the individual physician. And so there, there might be some of the things you can fight after the fact, but it's going to cost a lot of money. So getting it right up front is really key. Absolutely. And I look to even the family medicine model, right? It is affordable to have your regular scheduled visits and get that checkup to, to know what's going on. It's much more expensive when you're in the emergency room uh, and, and trying to figure that out. Uh, and, and I do also agree that I actually changed my practice a bit where prior, if I found something that was just really unenforceable, I'd say, look, if you want to sign it, plug your nose, they, they likely won't be able to enforce it. But but per your example, I found in circumstances, even if you've got the winning hand, right, even if your uh, argument is the correct legal one, you have to have resources to go to court to, to fight it. So much better to have that understanding. You also will learn a lot about your employer through this process, and, and they may learn some about you too. If they're completely inflexible over some things that are reasonable, and that's the test, right? You want to be reasonable in this, then what's it going to be like when there is some dispute later in the relationship? So you, you may find yourself uh, that that it's not a place you want to work for if this is how they respond or react to to an adjustment or a, a, a mild criticism of their approach. So what's that one takeaway you give to family physicians signing a new employment contract? Yeah, so so in addition to the things we've discussed, again, you know, key is really knowing what you're agreeing to, being comfortable that you're agreeing to it, um, and 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 vetting vetting that relationship. So when when someone offers you a job, it's very exciting. It's 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 new, but but you want to you want to look at your contract for how does it end, and and if it has to end, how do we go our separate ways and and mutually be respectful, and and that's that's settled in the contract. I I sometimes speak to them as kind of like prenup, right? That you know what will happen. It doesn't, we all know they're offering you the job and you you can take it or not take it. And that's, that's the easy part. The hard part is when you decide to go different directions, how do you separate? And that's what what's best to have in the contract. Um, I, I think it's a relationship thing here that, that uh, just like you could have a prenup ruin a marriage that you might not get married because they fought so much over what needs to be in the prenup, you could have the same here. So, so I, I, would, I would avoid seeing it as like a purchasing a vehicle. A, a short-term win to get a little more money or a little better deal may not be uh, uh, the long-term gain that, that you'll have a great relationship with a, a good employer and a practice setting you want to work in. That's great advice. So, Sean, if our members have any questions, what should they do or where should they look? Well, you know, there's tons of great resources. You spoke to AAFP. We have some as well. Uh, you know, as an information education advocacy organization, our members can definitely reach out to us directly. Um, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions you may have on this podcast or, or uh, what's going on in your employment voyage as well. Sean, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the October edition of NCFM Today. You can find NCFM Today on the Apple or Google stores, on Spotify, or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can also find it on our website at www.ncafp.com. We encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to that podcast. Help us out. Rate us, review us, and subscribe. Until next month. This is Greg Griggs.